Okay, I'll, I'll confess that uh, I'm the one responsible for the cold sanctuary. It's not that it's a big place, it's just that I have a big ego, and I didn't want anyone falling asleep after lunch, so I told them to shut the heat off. I'd rather have people shivering than snoring in front of me. So, This is such a cool conference. I've never been to a conference where I got to watch a, a, an episode of The Twilight Zone before I, I uh, heard a uh, lecture on uh, apologetics. That was cool. All these pop cultural references are awesome. I haven't been able to answer a single question that you've presented so far. <laughs> I haven't even heard of the predicate and the noun in the sentence, so whatever. Uh, the other thing I have to clarify, I think you've probably figured out by now that I'm not exactly doing the talks as they are outlined in the schedule. Uh, you know how it goes. You, you get asked for a title, and you think, this is going to work. And then when you get into it, you realize, ah, I need to modify it. So really, the first talk was uh, control the original sin. It was really a, it's kind of an exposition of that, it's contr- that, that, it is, uh, that it is pride, that it is rebellion, but the specific form it takes, I think, or at least the specific form I want us to think about this weekend is control. And then this talk will be, uh, this will be more a variety of religious oppression, and uh, the divine mission of liberation, and how the revolution is being fomented. So after that opening chapters on Genesis, I have an exposition of the uh, call of Abraham, uh, the the great man of faith, who is the most most faithless man I have ever seen in the Bible. And I, I think it's I think it's uh, ironic that he is considered a, a model of faith because he's such he's such a bad he's a, such a bad Christian. You know, he just tries to control the whole process. He's given a promise, and the rest of the book of Genesis is about him trying to control that promise and to make it happen when God wasn't ready to make it happen. Uh, time and time again, it's a very interesting story in that regard. Um, then I talk about uh, how. I have a little riff on the story of the Tower of Babel. Most of us think, again, that the main sin there is the sin of pride, people wanting to be like God. But I, I interpret it in this way. It wasn't that they were that, that making a name for themselves is such a problem. Because, in fact, in the very next chapter, uh, God says he's going to make a name for Abraham, for someone to have a great reputation. That's, that's just part of being human and being a human community. We all hope at the end of our lives we have, in certain spheres of our life, we have something of a reputation. Uh, uh, so, I, but I, th- I think what their sin is, they said, uh, behold, if, if we don't build this tower, we're going to be scattered. And we don't want to be scattered. We want to stay together in complete defiance of the command to be fruitful and multiply and spread out over the whole earth. So the punishment uh, that is fit for this crime is really interesting. God gives them multiple languages so they have no choice but to be spread over the whole earth and to fulfill the command, whether they like it or not. So it's an act of judgment and an act of grace and an act of providence all in one. But again, I hinge it on this notion of trying to control uh, one's destiny as opposed to what God wants. Then I talk about how this, what this desire for control that it morphs into, and I alluded it to it with the Aristotle quote, it morphs into oppression in personal relationships and it morphs into oppression in, in the largest sphere as well, political oppression, so that it's not surprising that, the earth, that a lot, 
large sections of the Old Testament are about political liberation. So you've got the book of Exodus. Uh, you have the oppression of Pharaoh and the liberation of Israel. And then Israel gets its freedom uh, and then, through various and sundry ways, ends up losing its freedom and is dispersed and exiled and is put under the thumb of Assyria. And, and then some of our most wonderful messianic passages come in the midst of that oppression and promise liberation. And, of course, they have a twin or a manifold meaning. There is definite uh, a promise of political liberation, but also something, some other types of liberation as well. So, uh, so what I'm trying to show in the first part of the book is, is how, this, how our desire for control turns in on itself and always puts us in a, in a place of oppression rather than the freedom that we're seeking. And then I move on to now what I call religious oppression and, and the various forms it takes and how God's mission is liberation in the midst of that impression. So we'll pick that up here. And then how the liberation is affected, I think is very important. That relates back to Genesis 1. So here we go. But again, um, so I talk about on the one hand, the Bible recognizes that life in God needs to be embedded in religious activity, scripture study, worship, ritual, and so forth. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus assumed that the devout life will include prayer, fasting, and almsgiving. The Bible shows that Jesus was a man of prayer, that he was a regular church attender. As Luke noted, it was his custom on the synagogue to go to the Sabbath. I mean, sorry, sorry, on the Sabbath to go to the synagogue. That's why I need to stick with my manuscript. <laughs> At the same time, the Bible can talk about religion as if it were the enemy, we're not talking just about false religion or idol worship. The prophets could also indict perfectly orthodox religious practices. Take, for example, Isaiah's classic charge when he quotes God as saying, When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring me no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and a Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. I mean, this must have been shocking rhetoric in Isaiah's day because offerings and feasts and religious gatherings are so much of what the biblical books like Leviticus are all about. The people were doing in spades the exact thing they had been commanded to do. Religion as such, though, is not the problem, but religion that becomes a means of social and economic oppression. That's another matter. God despises religion when people use it to avoid some rather elementary matters of justice. Take one passage from the uh, prophet Micah. Hear this, you heads of the house of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel who detest justice and make crooked all that is straight. Its heads give judgment for a bribe. Its priests teach for a price. Its prophets practice divination for money. This is a, a type of religious oppression in which justice is not only ignored, but in which the religious establishment, in a sort, conspires with it, and in which religion itself and its success is defined, what it does for its adherents, in this case, what it does for the priests and the prophets. Uh, but there are many things that tempt the religious world to make religion about us rather than God. And it may not be money, it may be church attendance, it may be cultural influence, it may be even a deeper devotion and spirituality. The whole business gets twisted into other forms of oppression, like moral oppression. This is a recurring theme of Jesus' interaction with the religious leaders of his day. 
One classic encounter happens when one group of religious teachers, the Pharisees, defenders of the moral order, criticize Jesus and his disciples for picking grain on the Sabbath. Jesus' pithy response gets right to the heart of the matter. The Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. The point of the religious law, as with all religious law, is not found in itself. No, the law is designed to bring freedom and life. There is no more succinct expression of Jesus' exasperation with moral oppression than Jesus' famous sermon against the Pharisees, which begins, The scribes and Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, so practice and observe whatever they tell you, but not what they do. For they preach, but they do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. The Apostle Paul is one with his master in this, and his letter to the Church of Galatia is very much in the spirit of Jesus' sermon against the Pharisees. In this case, it is Christians, not Pharisees, who make law an end in itself, who use law to burden instead of free people. In this case, some Christians are arguing that uh, accepting circumcision was part and parcel of being a Christian. They assume that since God's covenant with Abraham included circumcision, God's covenant in Christ must require the same. Paul responds with a decided no, arguing in so many words that what had once been a sign of God's gracious relationship with his people had become, as we have seen time and again, a mere external ritual. Instead of it being a free act of gratitude for God's goodness, it had become a religious yardstick for measuring one's righteousness. This is not freedom. This is moral oppression, and Paul will have none of it. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. And it's interesting, when Paul thinks something's really important, he becomes redundant. For example, a late, I think it's later, or did I quote it this morning? I lose track here, but he talks about the free gift that God gives us. Well, a gift is by its nature free. You don't need the word free on top of it. But when he's really trying to make a point, he gets redundant. It's a free gift. And here, for freedom, Christ is set as free. It's a redundant phrase that doesn't make logical sense, but he's trying to drive home the point that it is about, it's all about freedom. Uh, with the coming of Jesus Christ, every law and commandment is turned on its head. They are not ends in themselves, but a means to the end and a life of freedom of love. So I just said that. Now, then there is a form of religious oppression, which we might call spiritual oppression. I mean, it's really interesting to me how many forms of oppression there are in the Bible and in our lives. So here's another one. We see this in a, many stories in which Jesus delivers people from sickness and demonic oppression. Time and again, people come to him who are oppressed by demons. It's the language of the New Testament. To be freed from illness, which Jesus understood as a type of spiritual oppression. Thus, when Jesus commissions his disciples to share in his work, he sums up that work in this way. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons. It's all a work of liberation. Spiritual oppression takes another, even more debilitating form. Uh, Jesus frames his ministry in light of this in the middle of the Gospel of John. If you abide in my word, you are truly my, my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Truly, I say to you, everyone who commits a sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Kind of redundancy there, too. 
Paul put it in this way in his letter to the Romans. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe we will also live with him. The sin that Jesus and Paul refer to here took its first form in the eating of the forbidden fruit, followed by the murder of a brother. Then we see it manifested in Abraham's repeated refusal to trust in God's goodness and promise and in Moses' impatience to get on with his call. Because I have a little passage there about how Moses gets, you know, he has this, he has this sense that he's about, he is about the liberation of Egypt, but he starts it by murdering someone, by killing someone, rather than waiting for God's call. He's trying to take control of the situation there. Sin is the refusal to live in loving trust in God's daily word, which is freedom itself. It is a refusal to be fruitful and multiply, to tend the garden work, to live calmly and trustingly when God's order always seems to be on the verge of chaos. Sin takes the commandment of God and turns it into an iron rule rather than a living word from a loving Savior, something we control rather than something we obey. Sin is the yearning to live safe, controlled, predictable lives instead of lives born in and driven by the wild and unpredictable spirit of God. Sin is fundamentally a desire for order where God does not want order and to control that which God does not want us to control. And not surprisingly, what comes of this panting after order and control is that our lives are ordered and controlled by that which cannot give life. Spiritual oppression in the end. Sin enslaves the person who participates in it. It's spiritual heroin. It's partake in because we think it will increase our options, but it soon narrows them to the point of death. And the tragedy is that when we realize the trajectory that our sin has put us on and we try to break free of its grip, we discover that its grip becomes stronger than ever. We are powerless over our addiction to it, an addiction from which only death can set us free. Dealing with oppression, the oppression in which all oppression finds its root, this particular oppression, was the mission of God and Jesus Christ. Liberation from the oppression of sin required a death. But in a gift as mysterious as it is wonderful, it was the death of Jesus that has made the difference. Gift is the key word here. Oh, this is where I came to that passage. Uh, according to Paul in Romans, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all have sinned. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's sins, much more have the grace and the free gift by grace of that one man, Jesus Christ. Uh, abounded for the many. And he repeats that word again. I won't have to repeat that whole verse. You've heard it so many times. But again, that phrase, free gift, is used. For what Jesus has done is not obligation. It is not duty. It is not quid pro quo, something for something. It is gift. And as gift, it is an offering made in freedom. Only a free gift can bring true freedom. And to signal that he was free to give this gift of his death. And free over the gift itself. Free from the curse of Adam. That oppressed humankind ever since. Christ overcame death. Rose from the grave. For by a man came death, writes Paul. But by a man has also come 
the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all are made free. It is no wonder that Paul, when he tries to sum up all who Christ is and all that he has done for us, his words cascade over one another for freedom. Christ has set us free. And it's not just Paul whose ministry sums up this, who sums up Jesus' work in this way. At the very beginning of his ministry, Jesus went to the synagogues to explain the work he was about to embark on, and he quoted a passage from the prophet Isaiah, and in doing so, pointed to himself. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. Jesus announced that oppression, in whatever its form, political, economic, moral, or spiritual, is the object of his life. He is the liberating son of a liberating father who then sent a liberating spirit to complete his work. Now, the ongoing attraction of religion is understandable. Mere religion tempts us precisely because it is an attempt to manage and quell the holy chaos, as we talked about earlier, just as Adam and Eve and every person since has tried to manage it. Karl Barth talks about chaos in other theological categories, but he's pointing to the same temptation. Uh, what, why we're tempted toward religion. The picture of a world without paradox and without eternity, of knowing without the background of not knowing, of a religion without the unknown God, of a view of life without the memory of the know by which we are encountered, has much to be said in its favor. It evokes confidence, for it is simple and straightforward and uncramped. It provides considerable security and has few ragged edges. It corresponds, generally speaking, with what is required by the practical experiences of life. Its standards and general principles are conveniently vague and flexible, and it possesses, moreover, a liberal prospect of vast future possibilities. Just dripping with sarcasm. <laughs> the thing we have to recognize in religion is that it, it is a subtle and stealthy tempter and makes scribes and Pharisees into many of us. Today, in many quarters, Christian theology and ethics have become mere law. We may not practice divination for money, but we do pine after all those markers of success that suggests, ultimately, that religion is about us justifying ourselves. That is, putting ourselves in charge of making and keeping our relationship with God in order. Bart summed it up this way in his commentary on Romans. Our relation with God is ungodly. We suppose that we know what we are saying when we say God. We assign to him the highest place in our world, and in doing so, we place him fundamentally on one line with ourselves and with things. We assume that he needs something, and so we assume that we are able to arrange our relation to him as we arrange other relationships. We press ourselves into proximity with him, and so, all unthinking, we make him nigh unto ourselves. We allow ourselves an ordinary communication with him. We permit ourselves to reckon with him as though this were not extraordinary behavior on our part. We dare to deck ourselves out as his companions, patrons, advisors, and commissioners. Secretly, we are the masters in this relationship. We are not concerned with God, but with our own requirements to which God must adjust himself. 
In short, religion is tempted to bring God down to our level, to domesticate him and his commands, to make him into our image, to corral and manage him. Religion is too often about control when God's mission is about liberation, which usually comes about through just new and mighty infusions of holy chaos. If one makes a statement about the type of interest one, by, by uh, the type of entrance one makes, God made an extraordinary one when he came to us in Jesus, mighty God in the flesh. It was a quiet and humble entrance in some ways. He was born as a babe in a manger in the context of a family. But it is framed in a way that harkens back to the holy chaos of the Spirit of God introduced into the world in the beginning. As such, it reveals how God in Jesus, and later in the Holy Spirit, inaugurates his liberating work with people addicted to order and control. To begin with, Jesus is born, says the Bible, with a virginal conception, decidedly not in accord with the normal order of things. And then there was a host of angels who announced the birth to some startled shepherds with what would turn out to be very ironic words, peace on earth. For the first memorable political act after the birth of God with us is the mass murder of infants followed by the exile of the Holy Family. This is the type of peace that was to come later in his ministry. In his childhood, Jesus signaled that he was not going to be about maintaining the religious and social status quo. He was only 12 when he disobeyed his parents, staying behind in Jerusalem to teach in the temple after they had started home. He's flaunting one of the Ten Commandments, honor your father and mother, apparently believing already that the Fifth Commandment was not made for man, but, uh, was not made for man, but man for the Fifth Commandment. His parents are naturally hurt. Son, why have you treated us so? But Jesus just rebukes them for not recognizing his mission. Jesus was not a good little boy. Things get really interesting when Jesus begins his ministry some 18 years later. His opening sermon sets the tone, the one in which he announces his mission of liberation. He's in Nazareth, his hometown. He has an opportunity to win the favor of family and friends so they can send him off on his ministry with good cheer. Instead, he picks the occasion to shame them for their parochialism. He notes that God is just as interested in freely sharing his mercy with Gentiles as he is with chosen people. You know Jesus has touched a raw nerve when his friends and relatives, the people who have a natural and deep affection for him, drag him to the edge of town and threaten to throw him off a cliff. The pattern of holy chaos in Jesus' ministry has been set, so we shouldn't be surprised subsequently to see Jesus time and again challenge the religious orders of his, order of his day, sometimes openly flaunting custom and law. As we noted, he encouraged his disciples to break the Sabbath. He associated with the religiously disreputable. He welcomed women, second-class citizens in the day, to participate in his mission. He questioned customs on fasting, fasting, almsgiving, and prayer. Many examples can be given, but one in particular reveals Jesus' destabilizing method. One Sabbath, Jesus was teaching in a synagogue. In addition to the congregation, Luke notes, there were scribes and Pharisees, and a man whose right hand was withered. The religious leaders have come to catch Jesus breaking religious law, in particular healing on the Sabbath. Now Jesus, had he been a good Anglican or Lutheran, 
would have figured out a lot of ways to avoid confrontation here. First, the man with the withered hand does not ever ask for healing. Jesus is not being backed into a no-win situation here, whether he has to either deny the quest to heal or flaunt religious custom. Since the man never asks to be healed, Jesus could have simply done nothing. Further, even if he felt compelled to heal the man, there is no reason Jesus could not have waited just a few hours until the sunset. Then the Sabbath would be over, and the healing would be perfectly legal. The man had likely lived with this impediment for years, if not decades. He certainly could have waited a couple more hours to be healed. Jesus could have pursued a win-win-win situation. Michael Scott, another pop culture reference, okay? (laughs) So he could have healed the man, avoided working on the Sabbath, and thus avoided the controversy with religious leaders. He would have remained in good standing with everyone. What ministry leader wouldn't want that? But Jesus is not interested in maintaining a social or religious order that thwarts the dynamic work of God. So he calls the man forward in the middle of the service, in the middle of the day, in the middle of God and everybody, and heals him. Jesus deliberately provokes the situation. Jesus deliberately initiates controversy. Jesus destabilizes the situation. It is this sort of behavior, of course, that eventually gets him killed. But not before he manages to upset every expectation about God and his Messiah and the religious life. He says God is the type of God whose values are not what, quite what we imagine. God is not so much enamored with the pious and the righteous, but more with the poor, the sad, the meek, the hungry. Contrary to common assumptions the rich, that the rich have been blessed by God, Jesus says that God has real concerns about the wealthy. He says that rather than retaliating, one should forgive. Rather than hating enemies, one should love them. Rather than keeping what is rightfully yours, you should give it away. A man who goes about challenging the political, religious, and moral order like this could be mistaken for a revolutionary. And this is precisely what people thought. Jesus tries to disabuse him of this. When Peter apparently assumes that Jesus' mission will only be accomplished by his military victory over Rome, Jesus calls him the incarnation of Satan. He then reminds Peter and the other disciples of the great paradox that only in giving up one's life can one preserve and foster life. When one of the disciples tried to prevent his arrest, slashing at the soldiers who have come after him, Jesus tells him to sheath his sword. When Jesus has a chance to defend himself before authorities who hold the power of capital punishment, he remains silent. When unjustly tried and cruelly nailed to a cross, just when righteous anger would have been expected and justified, he openly forgives his accusers. These are not the actions and words of a man who takes his bearings from what is expected, from what constitutes the normal order of things. He is decidedly uninterested in preserving that order, in maintaining the status quo. He says at one point that he has not come to abolish the law, but only to fulfill it. But it is impossible to ignore the fact that in fulfilling it, he transcends it. And by transcending it, he introduces chaos, a condition or place of great disorder and confusion. 
Disorder and confusion abound when we come to the end of the story. A peaceful Messiah is mistaken by the authorities for a political revolutionary. An innocent man is arrested and trumped up on trumped-up charges and condemned to death. The Messiah, God's righteous one, suffers and is crucified. A dead man rises. Even this supposedly happy ending only makes things more confusing. In one account, the men guarding the tomb quote, trembled and became like dead men. In another resurrection appearance, the disciples are frightened and startled. In another still, two men have no idea they are conversing with Jesus. The characteristic response to the resurrection, an event that still instills confusion and disorder to this day, is that of the women who Mark says fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. In the centuries since, Christians have tried really hard to tame the resurrection, to bring it under some manageable control, shoring it up with uh, historical and logical proofs, talking about it as if it makes perfect sense. But a resurrection that has become a comforting tale is not the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The resurrection of Jesus announces a new world order, doing so first by upsetting and demolishing the old world order. It is not the mere recitation of the body, but a signal that everything that is dead, that, I mean, a signal that everything, yeah, that is dead, predictable, rigid, lifeless, and orderly, is going to be made unpredictable, flexible, lively, and new. That's the type of holy chaos that's the type of thing holy chaos does. It shatters the order that has become an oppressive order. It throws out of control that which has been tightly controlled. It forces everyone to make a choice. Hold on tighter to the life made in our image or let it go and see the new liberating thing God is doing in our midst. This disruptive resurrection life only becomes more so after Jesus left and gave us the Holy Spirit, the one we first saw brooding and creating mischief in the creation order. Well, the Spirit came back with a vengeance. As we saw in the creation, the Spirit reveals something of God's mischievous character. The Spirit is also behind the work of those crazy prophets, Isaiah and Micah, who burn eloquent against the political and religious oppression of their day and announce the coming liberation of the so-called mighty God. It is the Spirit who empowers the holy, chaotic work of Jesus. And it is the Spirit whom Jesus specifically notes will carry on the work of liberation until he comes. Luke, the author of Acts, begins the book by noting that this is the second part of a larger work, the first part being about, quote, all that Jesus began to do and teach. The implication is that the book of Acts is the continuation of what Jesus did and taught, a continuation, of course, in the Holy Spirit. There are many stories in the book of Acts that would illustrate this point, but I'm just going to pick out three. Three early moments in the church's life that signals that God, of, the God of liberation is at work in the Holy Spirit. First and foremost, of course, comes on the day of Pentecost. It's really interesting that this, frame, this event is framed by the religious order of the day. Jews from across the world had gathered in Jerusalem. Pentecost, was also called the Feast of Weeks, was one of three major festivals of the Jewish year. One of the three obligatory observances for Jews, falling between the Feasts of Passover and Tabernacles. Originally, it was called the Feast of the Harvest, 
of the first fruits of your labor of what you now sow, what you sow in the field. That's a quote from Deuteronomy. And then later, the first fruits of the wheat harvest. But by the time of our story, it had lost its association with agriculture and it had become an occasion to remember the giving of the Torah to Israel. Thus, in both form, an annual religious mandatory ritual, and in content, the celebration of the law, it is an event about order, liturgical and moral order, to be exact. It is no coincidence that at this festival, the Holy Spirit would come with power and disorder. The first hint of the ensuing confusion is that suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. Then, quote, divided tongues of fire, as of fire, rested on each of them. I mean, Luke is, is struggling to describe this, and it's apparent that he's confused about the words he's, he's going to use to describe it. It's so, so unusual. Then comes the audible miracle. People from across that portion of the world, 15 people groups are mentioned, exclaim, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. This is a miracle, uh, of course, but not one, not a miracle that brings peace and order, but only amazement and perplexity. Those witnessing the event see so much confusion, they mistake it for a drunken party. Furthermore, the gift of language is, not, is not, not, not merely about the diversity of culture as it is in the story of Babel, but the means by which God makes his works known. One of these works, of course, is the very presence of diverse language and cultures and in fulfillment of his command to fulfill, to be fruitful and multiply over the whole earth. Now, Peter explains what people are seeing in front of them is the wave of the future. This is the way things are going to be from now on a little disorderly and confusing. And this is what he says. In the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And your young men shall see visions. And your old men shall dream dreams. Even on male and female servants. In those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. This is a remarkable statement. One that announces that the religious social is being completely upended. The spirit will now come upon all flesh, not just prophets and priests. Specifically, young men and male servants and daughters and even the lowest in the social hierarchy, female servants, will experience this. Everyone from bottom to top to bottom of the social hierarchy has access to this wondrous spirit of God. This radically relativizes not only Jewish religion, but subsequent Christian religion as well. The religion of the future, implies Peter, and which Paul will later elaborate on, will be a religion of the spirit and a religion of the heart, and that future is now. The religion is not about external law and ritual. It is not about a priestly class and a lay class. It is not about institutions and programs. It is about the law written on the heart and the spirit filling every believer. Furthermore, Peter says that what is happening is the result of another disordering event. What could be more confusing to devout Jews than the idea that the Messiah shamefully died on a cross? And what could be more unnerving to those Jews who did not believe in resurrection and to Greeks who thought the resurrection a myth to be told that Jesus was raised from the dead? 
The person of Jesus brings confusion layered upon disorder, leading to complete reversal in so many matters. It is the height of theological absurdity for Peter to say, let the, all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. It is no wonder that when the Spirit descends upon people, the same sort of holy chaos, strange tongues, results. It's, it's almost a, it's an icon, it's, a, it's an audible icon of what's going on, the confusion of tongues. And yet, for those who are willing to have their entire worlds turned upside down, for those who are willing to follow where the wild spirit is heading, for those who repent and believe, to use Peter's language, they find themselves liberated from their sin, forgiven, and liberated from the need to order and control. That is, freed to live a life in obedience to God's fresh command. This is the first and primal gift of chaos that God gives the church, the manifestation of the Spirit on the day of Pentecost. It points not only backwards to its source, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, but forward to a new life, confused, chaotic freedom and love that characterizes life in the Spirit-filled church. As we rummage through the book of Acts, the Holy Spirit upends not just the theology of the day and the religion of the day. The Spirit works also in very personal ways. And the Spirit, Holy Spirit's holy chaos manifests itself in individual lives, both upsetting and transforming their lives. We noted how that happened in the case of Stephen. Then there's the experience of Peter. For him, holy chaos comes in the form of a vision. He's been praying and had become hungry when he fell into a trance. He saw a great sheet descending from heaven upon which, quote, were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And a voice said, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But of course, this was something of a shock to a devout Jew like Peter. Like his fellow religionists, he had made it a point not to eat things forbidden by the Mosaic law. Consequently and logically, he replied, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. To which the voice responds, what God has made clean, do not call common. This happens three times. And afterwards, Luke says, Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision might mean. <laughs> Slow, man. At that point, he receives a visit from servants of a centurion named Cornelius, a Gentile, and these servants have come to invite Peter to his home. This invitation would normally have resulted in a polite refusal because, as Peter put it later, it is unlawful for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But Peter's world and worldview are being turned upside down. The Holy Spirit is shaking things up, and Peter recognizes that something holy is going on in the confusion. For all his denseness, he understands that, and he goes. The end result is not only the conversion of Cornelius to Christ, but of Peter's conversion to Christ's mission. Truly I understand, he says, that God shows no partiality. That may be a commonplace to modern sensibilities, but for a devout Jew, faithful to the letter and the spirit of the Mosaic law, this is about as radical as it gets. By this time, by this uh, experience of Peter's, the quintessential disruption of the Spirit had already taken place on the road to Damascus. On a mission to bring order to the religious life of Israel is one Saul. He was an admired religious figure of his day, 
a member of the strict Pharisees, zealous for the tradition, meticulous in keeping the law. Saul had been deeply troubled by the rise of this new sect called the Way, which had been proclaiming that the Messiah had come, and that uh, though shamefully crucified by the authorities, he had been raised from the dead. Saul recognized that the implications of this message, if spread, could shake his religion to its foundations. So to protect his people's spiritual integrity, he gave himself to rooting out these disturbers of the peace, hunting them down, and if necessarily, killing them. He was on his way to Damascus to do just this, breathing threats and murder, as Luke puts it, when the foundation of his own life cracked open. He was thrown to the ground by a bright light and a loud voice. The man who thought he saw all things clearly was now blind. Three days later, his sight is restored, but his view of the world is completely changed. He is no longer an enemy of Jesus Christ, but an apostle of his Lord. He no longer is merely a Jew, but a world citizen. He has been transformed by holy chaos. The chaos that interrupted the lives of Peter and Paul eventually makes its way into the larger church so that there is no small uh, dissension and debate about what place Gentiles have in the life of the church of Jesus Christ. The established understanding of the custom of Moses is so threatened that nothing less than a church council must be called to settle the matter. The Council of Jerusalem is uh, the first church-wide gathering to settle a matter that had been brought to their attention by the unsettling work of the Spirit. Nearly every story in the book of Acts is an act of the Holy Spirit. In fact, it's, it's, the book is misnamed when it's called Acts of the Apostles. It, it, the book is about the acts of the Holy Spirit. Read it and don't see if you don't think that's true. Okay? Nearly every story in the book of Acts is an act of the Holy Spirit, disrupting, upsetting, challenging the religious status quo, a religious order that had become suffocating and confining, a religious establishment that had become oppressive. In my last talk, that'll be tomorrow, I want to put some flesh on the ideas. I want to give two examples of how our current religious culture in Christianity, American Christianity, how the culture of control manifests itself in our culture, and I want to suggest ways in which the spirit of chaos, I think, wants to free us from our self-imposed oppressions. But that's enough for today.